Hello, everybody, and happy Tuesday. This is the Derek Hunter podcast, and as your keen ears have told you, I am back. It is Dean Carianis from the New York Sun. I am host of the History Author Show on iHeartRadio and produce some of those up on YouTube. And I was a member of Rush Limbaugh's highly overrated staff for 25 plus years, which sounds like a long time since I am still just a kid at heart. Derek is out for the rest of the week, but I will be here. He was very kind to ask me to come back. Go to patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast and to DerekHunter.locals.com. Support the show. Get a look at some of that behind the scenes content. Be participating in a two-way bond that you don't often get to do anymore, I'm sorry to say, in talk radio. Plus, you get the weekend effing review, the news the way it deserves to be talked about. And these days, I would say probably I'm going to have to teach Derek some Greek curse words because the standard ones don't seem to be enough to talk about the mess that we find our nation and our world in on many fronts. But let's be of good cheer. Let's hit it. That's something that is so important to me, relates to that idea of making that friendship, that connection with people listening at home. Rush always said that radio, when done right, was the most intimate of mediums. And boy, I feel like that's so lost. I feel like everybody that's on radio really wants to be on TV. Everybody that's on radio wants to vomit everything all over Twitter and Instagram and whatever gab is. Gab's a thing, right? And they want to sell, sell, sell. And I know when I read that line there about patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast, I feel a little twinge of, ah, I'm selling to people. I don't like to sell them. You guys remember that scene if you saw the movie and they're asking John Cusack's character, what do you want to do? This is from 1989, Say Anything. I thought about this quite a bit, sir. And I, I would have to say, considering what's waiting out there for me, I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed or buy anything sold or processed or process anything sold, bought, or processed, or repair anything sold, bought, or processed. You know, as a career, I don't want to do that. So uh, my father's in the Army. He wants me to join, but I can't work for that corporation. Um, so what I've been doing lately is kickboxing, which is a uh, new sport, but I think it's got a good future. And it always struck me because no young kid dreams of going and becoming a salesman for some product that people may not even really want. It's a very noble profession that was among my father's professions was being in sales. But to have people think you look at them as soon as you see them as a customer, that was the specific phrase Rush always used with us. I never want people out there in the EIB audience to think I'm looking at them as customers. Another reason why he always said he'd never run for office. He said to hold my hand out, ask somebody to put something in it. Uh, I couldn't do it, especially since then they're going to want something back. He just could not do that. There was an article many of you may have seen in the free press. It was a column, the free press for the people, called The Day the Delusions Died by Constantine Kissin. All the people out there that are looking at this column and sharing it out there on conservative media, conservative Twitter, I'm sure it's all over Truth Social, they're missing a little bit. They're engaging in some really hopeful thinking. The subhead of this piece is a lot of people woke up on October 7th as progressives and went to bed that night feeling like conservatives. What changed? Now, of course, what changed was 
Hamas went and slaughtered 1,400 innocent people in Israel. This was shocking, terrifying, shook people to their core, especially Jewish people. Constantine quotes here a few different people he knows who are liberals and how this changed them. I had a friend who felt much the same after 9-11. He, he said he woke up, went, joined the army. But I think this idea of this did our work for us and the idea that once terrorist attacks happen, it's that old canard about a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. I think you could depend on that to do way too much lifting for you. People on the left have very dearly held beliefs. This does not change it for all of them. And I don't think getting in their face and saying, see, I told you so, which some of these posts on social media have a little flavor of, is effective long term. Yeah, it may feel really good inside, but it's not going to be effective long term. And I think the days, for me anyway, looking now from the outside, kind of, I guess I have a little window here, tiny bit of influence here with my columns and such, but I think we need every single person. Western civilization, it is not an exaggeration to say, hangs in the balance and what kind of country we are going to be. I think there's always this tendency to think, aha, people have woken up to how we think. Because of course, if you think it, it must be so obvious. Everyone should think that way. That's only natural. People on the other side think the same way. They look at you and say things like, how could you be voting against your interests? So the notion of waking people up, of people waking up, which is literally what this man uses here in this column as the example, they woke up on October 7th, as he says, as progressives, not a word that I would use, banned in the New York Sun style book, people who want more government regulation and higher taxes, it asks us not to refer to as progressive, that's not progress. Those people went to bed that night feeling like a conservative. So what do they wake up like the next day? Were they still thinking that way? That doesn't mean it's going to extend to taxes. It doesn't mean it's going to extend certainly to voting that way. And even if it does, we have a House majority right now. If you are a Republican, I happen to be a registered independent. I think I just screwed up the form and I went back and fixed it. But if you are a Republican, if you want to see them do well, and I think a, a lot of us in this audience, if not everybody in this audience does, you see already, we have this majority. What are they doing with it? They're squabbling. They're fighting amongst themselves. To change minds is something a lot harder than any one event. And this may be an open door. If you find one of those open doors with somebody, I would encourage you to walk through it carefully and thinking about it, especially with the numbers and the way they're changing. Republicans start every single election down by probably two goals if you're a hockey fan. It's probably better to say by a field goal if you're a football fan. But they're behind in voter registration. So we can't squander a single moment. And if you run into somebody who doesn't really think this national security stuff is important, and if the fact that so many on the left are right now turning their backs on Israel, and if not being outright hostile to them, I hope you'll be armed with some of the things we're going to talk about today to make the most of that opportunity, to come with them in a loving way. And yet another thing I don't see that conservative media does anymore that rushed it so well. And that's when people would listen, something Tom Daschle, the Democratic Senate Majority Leader said at one point, they did polling and they said, the thing about Rush is we discovered it's not just people who agree with him that listen, but he's very persuasive. People who don't listen, listen and be entertained and they end up getting converted. And when those people who were converted would call, sometimes they'd apologize. And Rush would say, you don't owe me an apology. And he didn't spend all day railing after the people who had voted. He would often rail against Republicans, which I guess I'm doing a little bit today. 
I shouldn't even say rail. That's not the right word. Rush never railed. But he would he would target them. He wouldn't be afraid. It's one reason he didn't go to Washington, so they wouldn't become his friends. Everyone says they're friends with so-and-so now. Listen closely if they're mispronouncing their name or don't know the host name they're talking to. Uh, either way, if the host mispronounces the name of the guest or the guest mispronounces the name of the host, then you know that's all BS. They want to make it sound like they're in this little clique. Rush avoided that for this reason, so he could criticize. And he'd say Republicans didn't make their case. They're not working hard enough. And they didn't all have his great persuasive powers or or his brain so large that he could tie one half of it behind his back just to make it fair, can still do his show. And they didn't have that talent on loan from God. But these are no excuses, everybody. You still can go out there. And when people did and Rush persuaded them and they apologized for something like voting for Clinton or I voted for Obama or I used to be a liberal, I'm sorry, people would say. And he would always say, you don't owe me an apology. That's not for me to give you absolution. He would say what? He would say, welcome home. And I always thought that was the classiest, nicest thing. But it did multiple things, did a lot of heavy lifting. And not only was a nice thing to say, it not only made that person feel good, it showed everybody else listening out there that this is how you treat somebody when they start to wake up a little bit to some of the things going on. And hopefully the Republicans are sitting there with a nice breakfast in bed when they wake up to say, here's some policy, here's some policy grapefruit, and here's a policy orange and some policy bacon and some nice policy waffles. Ugh, making myself hungry now. But he would always do that so that it sent those two messages to the two classes of people. And it also showed all of us on the right how to do that, how to go about approaching somebody. And he also said, you will not persuade somebody by getting in their face and wagging the finger. It will never work. Even if in their head they realize they have been wrong, they're not going to give you the satisfaction. And this is something that happened between Winston Churchill and Mark Twain. Mark Twain introduced him at an event in Boston when he was here with his book. This is obviously way before the events of World War II. And it was 1900, that book tour. And at the time, the Boer War was going on, and Mark Twain was anti-imperialist, very critical of it. And he just started beating down Churchill. His description of it is so great. He's a young guy at that point. And he's in awe of Mark Twain. And he says, he beat me back into that last redoubt of the patriot, my country right or wrong. And... Mark Twain says to him, well, that's true if your country is attacked. I can understand that. But the Boers weren't attacking anyone. They just had the bad fortune to discover gold. And Britain decided, oh, we're going to go take that. And Churchill had warned against going to war with the Boers as well, which is what makes that exchange so fascinating. Even when you know sometimes that you have been wrong, you will resist if you're not approached in exactly the right way. More on this topic of not being so sure that delusions have died, because this is very important to me. We tend to do this a lot of times with celebrities or other people. You think, oh, okay, they, they said one thing that sounds like something a conservative might say. They're one of us now. Job done. We can move on. Conservatism, eh, it's like if you've ever had water in your basement, right? It's always going to be trying to seep in, and you've got to stop it. You've got to be really vigilant to keep that stuff out. So let's go back to Mr. Kissin's piece here, this idea of conversion and of how you convert and of thinking that the bad thing will do the work for you, that you don't have to keep doing that hard work. The man who seems to be everybody's favorite in the White House press pool, and that's Steve Ducey's son, Peter. And I smile a little bit when I think of 
this kid as I think of him in the press pool because I remember him in the elevator with his dad. His dad was just a great guy, hosted one of the shows that I produced a few times, a show called Pet News. That's from my animal science background and veterinary background. And a great guy, real chill guy. Kids were all really well behaved. And then, boy, one of those moments, talk about feeling older. <laughs> you turn on the TV one day and there's his son, that little kid doing a stand-up in front of the White House. I say all that not to name drop, another thing Derek doesn't particularly do a lot, but because I'll sound a little bit critical when I say people on the right cheer the questions Peter Doocy asks. And I have no problem with the questions that he asks, but often they're just statements of fact. They're just statements of the obvious. And to me, beyond whether or not it's a good question, beyond whether he's a, a good journalist, I, I think he is. I think it's good he asks the obvious things. That's what you're there for in the press pool, not to ask open-ended questions or what do you think of X, Y, Z. But to me, it shows how far journalism has fallen that simply raising the most obvious story of the day, the number one story, will often end with people saying he asked gotcha questions, he was nasty, Biden tells him off, the press corps doesn't like him, people get angry with him. Those questions are the weakest a guy like Sam Donaldson would have asked back in the day. Or that anti-Semite Helen Thomas. I can't imagine what she would be asking right now about Israel and Hamas. She'd be all over them. So I'm going to play a little clip here that doesn't have to do with that aspect of Peter Ducey's career, but it is him. So I wanted to mention that because I want to get everybody thinking and pushing back against the conventional wisdom wherever it came from. Another little thing I picked up from Russia and I ain't changing now. I'm always going to push back against the conventional wisdom. So here we go. Here's Ducey's stand-up from Monday morning, yesterday, to all of you that are living in the future, as I'm recording this on Monday night. Here we go. Roll it. But the Intel arm of CBP has a new bulletin out, and the headline is pretty alarming. It says in bold letters right at the top, foreign fighters of Israel-Hamas conflict may be encountered at southwest border. The Daily Caller got a copy of this material. It was distributed three days ago, and it's about Hamas, Hezbollah, or Islamic Jihad fighters exploiting the porous border to get into the U.S. Part of the concern is that terrorists can see a ton of traffic down there. One... Uh, Rather, the new number is 2.48 million encounters in a fiscal year, and among them at least 172 people from the terror watch list. That is 172 who actually came face-to-face -face with law enforcement and didn't get away. Okay, now, when you hear that, the initial reaction is to be, this is a bad thing. But then most of us kick in with a little partisan response, right? On the left, they're not too worried. They know who they're going to blame for that. They get to do that great thing where they tell you, don't politicize things. Then you have people on the right, and I guarantee you there are some who are fine with this because they think it will redound positively for them if some jihadi pulls something off. And they probably hope it happens somewhere that's very far away from them, where they live, of course, or they think very fatalistically and think it's going to happen. I hope it doesn't. But if it does, well, it'll wake people up at least. What are we going to do to wake people up? This certainly will wake people up. I wanted to warn against both of those types of thinking. It's not something that happens. And if you want something to happen at the border, you can't wait for that black swan event, Ben. I am sorry to tell you. Let me raise as an example here a story from CNN on March 13th of 2002. So over 20 years ago, just. The headline was, six months after September 11th, hijackers visa approval letters received. 
The story says, six months to the day after Mohammed Atta and Marwan al-Shihi flew planes into the World Trade Center, the Immigration and Naturalization Service notified a Venice, Florida flight school that the two men had been approved for student visas. Well, how nice for them. Six months after the guys end up dead and are part of the smoldering ash, they get their visa renewals. What changed after 9-11? Did anything really change? Did people jump right on that? This is six months after. Okay, you'd think this would be a shaming moment. They quote some people here from the INS at the time before it's ICE, a former district director, Tom Fisher, and he tells CNN letters never should have been sent. Yeah, no kidding. And it was a case of the right hand not knowing what the left hand was doing. And then they quote an INS spokesman, Russ Bergeron, and he said, I think it certainly is embarrassing that the letters show up at this late date. And then he does the Washington thing. It does serve to illustrate what we have been saying since 1995, that the current system for collecting information and tracking foreign students is antiquated, outdated, inaccurate, and untimely. Well, spokesman, at least that's his job to spin it. Try to be even-handed for the guy. Okay, that's the job, to put lipstick on a pig every day. Not a job I would want to have. But you're in the INS. You guys could, in fact, it's your job, fix some of those things to address it being antiquated, outdated, inaccurate, and untimely. You're not just sitting around waiting, except that you are. And so what did we do? We went, we spent all this money to go ahead and make the TSA agents federal employees, as if that was magically going to fix it overnight by unionizing them and making them federal employees. Remember now, only one of the 19 9-11 hijackers came to the U.S. on a student visa, but, but of the other 18, 14 came to the U.S. on a six-month tourist visa, four came on business visas, obviously not vetted. Washington loves these pieces of paper, right? And this goes for everybody in Washington, even when we talk about the border. Well, they're going to be vetted. They're going to be processed. Processed is such an inhumane word on one level, but also it gives the idea of machines and we're going to test people and we're going to ask a lot of questions. And I know I went through this process with my wife and a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of filling out forms, a lot of sitting and waiting around with people, not a lot of trying to really check you out. My wife came from Canada. She definitely got checked out a lot there, more than someone who just wanders across the border, says I'm being persecuted by Woody Allen back in San Marcos. It's a Bananas reference for all of you out there. Go see Bananas if you haven't. Great old movie, despite Woody Allen personally and despite him being a big leftist in the 70s. Today, things have moved a lot, and he he seems to make a lot of sense with a lot of the government show as much as a, a reprobate he is in the personal life. You think Washington must have been all hands on deck. Well... On September 13th of 2011, the Committee on Homeland Security in the House of Representatives was asking the question with the Subcommittee on Border and Maritime Security, remember what I just said about them liking to have a lot of meetings and paperwork and talking and bureaucracy? Oh my gosh, if we could just have more bureaucrats, life would be wonderful, we'd all be safe and it'd be gumdrops, we could leave the keys in our car in the street. The question was, 10 years after 9-11, can terrorists still exploit our visa system? Well, the fact that they're still asking it tells you what, because if they couldn't still ask it, they would be out there having parties celebrating that they'd clamp down on everything. The way that this all relates to that clip that I played by Peter Ducey is people who are thinking, well, if this happens, at least America will finally wake up. You can forget that notion. It is not going to happen. There's no incentive for them to wake up. They'll be fine no matter what will the ruling class. Sorry if I sound like I'm bashing a lot of conservatives, but 
a lot of them are saying, just go to your little room. All of them are moving to Florida. A lot of these conservatives were just saying, well, I'll raise my money and then I'll raise my kids. I'll keep my kids out of school and I'll just hunker down and wait for the mushroom cloud. And eventually things will get so bad. I guess they're somehow going to come running to them to save the country. Look at all the sponsors. Emergency rations lasting 50 years. Delicious beef stroganoff. Buy gold and build your bunker today. That's probably a sponsor. I've seen those things out there. Haven't I? Yes, I have. I say Where is the conservative movement pushing back against the Armageddon, trying to stop the Armageddon? You know, there was a speech that Theodore Roosevelt gave in 1912, and this was the one that boosted him to the Bull Moose Party, to their nomination, and of course split the Republican Party. And unfortunately, we got Woodrow Wilson. He talked in the speech about the importance of that moment and about holding back both Wilsonism and about Taft's weak executive leadership and about the excesses of corporatism that would eventually, he feared, lead to a reaction like the one that was later seen in the Soviet Union, of course, bloody, horrible, worse misery than had been under the czar. And he said this line, we stand at the gates of Armageddon and we battle for the Lord. As you can imagine, people clutch the pearls and, oh my gosh, he's crazy. And even then thought, oh, that's not the kind of thing we want to hear from a president and separation of church and state and blah, blah, blah. But he had that sense of fighting back. And this came from Theodore Roosevelt's upbringing and his unique Christian outlook. Something very popular at the time was called muscular Christianity. That idea that you should be ready, you should keep yourself strong and healthy and avoid all these negative influences. This is reflected later in Theodore Roosevelt's A Strenuous Life. Don't get drunk all the time. Don't be taking drugs all the time, especially young people. It's just so corrosive and it doesn't make you some kind of moralizing Bible thumper, which they'll try to make you by encouraging that, but you wanted to be ready to be able to fight and not hand to hand like TR would have done, but just be ready to fight against bad ideas, be healthy and be positive and be ready for what comes tomorrow. It's just part of good citizenship or was in his days when we valued things like that. This idea of battling is the key thing. The idea of being ready to fight, the idea of not just cowering in the corner or in your bunker waiting for the Armageddon to come so you could, what, crawl out of the ashes like Burgess Meredith in the Twilight Zone and scream, I told you so, to nobody when you're the last man on earth. But you've got a lot of beef stroganoff down there, and I guess your whole family with you, maybe. I want to see people fight. I don't like this idea of winning by losing. I wrote a column in the New York Sun And by the way, you can find that at nysun.com. We've started putting some things outside the paywall there. So if you want to see some of the stuff that I write about, you can go there. And sometimes it's free for you. What's better than free? My brother Nick's friend Yuri says, the only thing better than free is more free. So this is free sometimes at the New York Sun. There's about one a day that's free. A great place to go. We try to cover stories nobody else is covering from angles that are fair and in ways that nobody else is covering. But I wrote a column in February when President Carter entered hospice, and I wanted to take aim at this idea of Republicans were struggling to find something nice to say about the guy that wouldn't offend their base. A lot of Republicans are not like Derek and I, who don't care, who doesn't like what we say. They have to put that hand out that I mentioned earlier and make sure someone's putting money in it. But they fall back on this old canard that without Jimmy Carter, we would never have had Reagan. And that grates on me. And I speak, ladies and gentlemen, as Derek often says, these people who worked in the Reagan administration and they 
and they maybe did a week and a half in the mailroom. So I'm going to do that now. I speak, ladies and gentlemen, as the director of the Reagan campaign for the Lincoln School in 1980. That was the grammar school. I was in sixth grade, was I? And uh, we won in a crushing victory over both the Carter and the Anderson people. And I'm still friends to the girl who ran the Carter campaign to this day. She's my oldest friend. And she says, well, you guys were handing out jelly beans. We were handing out peanuts. We never had a chance against you. <laughs> but we won, and it was it was a bellwether. So I'm counting it as I worked for Reagan's victory in a Charlie Gateau kind of way, although not with the crazy shooty-shooty of President Garfield way. This idea that the only way Republicans win is if there's some black swan event, if something goes very, very wrong. And it's so insulting. I'm certainly not hoping for Hamas to send a bunch of people across the southern border just so I could be proven right and get some tighter border security. That is not the way to go. I want people to wake up now. I don't want to wait for the black swan event. I wish Reagan would have beaten Ford for the nomination in 1976, as I said at the time, because did I mention I was working on the Reagan campaign at the time between my juice box and nap and playing seven up and, oh man, don't you wish you still had a mat to lay on? Every day, take a little nap. Uh, what am I saying? They probably do, knowing how soft the world is now. Back to the muscular Christianity and standing at the gates of Armageddon, battling for the Lord, or at the very least for all of our conservative ideals, which we hope at least are in line, but are not arrogant enough to say, at least I'm not, are definitely what his will would be. I wrote in The Sun, quote, Reagan didn't just stumble into the presidency because of Mr. Carter's boycott of the Olympics, inflation, the Iran hostage crisis, or long lines at gas stations. He earned the opportunity to try his ideas, just as the Georgia peanut farmer turned governor did. Neither were accidents of fate. And I mentioned in the piece that Carter wasn't a guaranteed loser in 1980, according to the Gallup poll and others. They showed him leading. In fact, if you've read Peggy Noonan's What I Saw at the Revolution. She talks about being in CBS in the newsroom and everybody is shocked because they say, I didn't I didn't think this was possible. And that was the thing with Nixon too. Notice that famous statement, nobody I knew voted for Nixon. And this gives rise to the, rise to the silent majority and that, and that eventually carries through to the Reagan years. Reagan wins 44 states in 1980, and he does so against both Mr. Carter and John Anderson, who was a Republican congressman from Illinois who turned independent. So don't tell me that this guy who beat all of those odds wouldn't have won unless Carter was terrible. We forget sometimes what a tough, tough thing it is to do to beat an incumbent president. Only President Wilson in 1912 with TR running in that race. So that's a unique case there where you have a third party candidate who was already president running and the incumbent president who was William Howard Taft. So it only happens in 1912 when Wilson knocks off Taft with TR's help. And when FDR does it with Hoover, which is a one-on-one -on -one race, Hoover really is the only one that's analogous to Carter, although we had a bunch of presidents who didn't finish terms and things like that. So eh, I always avoid making too many comparisons. As far as it goes, definitely what Reagan did is something that doesn't need any comparison. It was an incredible feat. He was incredibly popular. He was incredibly persuasive as a candidate. He was really smart. He's a write all those speeches himself in longhand, despite what people tried to throw at him as myths. And he won because he did that hard work. He wrote those speeches in longhand. He took the time 
to go and speak to people. When he ran for governor and Brown accused him of being an empty suit, of being a puppet, oh, he's an actor, he reads lines. Reagan was bothered by it in private and he said, well, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna start writing a 45 minute speech and then I'll do a 45 minute Q&A with voters. So he told his people, start booking me for hour and a half events. Half of it will be a speech. Half of it will be me taking questions from the audience and showing that I am not reading anybody else's lines. He worked for the presidency all those years in those two campaigns. I think the idea that, well, we look at something bad that's going to happen, this conventional wisdom, in this case of the terrorists on the border, and say, well, that'll be good for us. Well, nothing bad that happens is good for Republicans. Nothing is good for the left, despite what Rahm Emanuel said about don't let a crisis go to waste. I think there's enough people in Washington doing that, and I hope that everybody listening today in this little family that I talked about, Derek building, that we avoid doing that, that we go out there and we fight and whoever we hear that's hoping for those things will push back a little bit, not just because it's wrong. It's not our place. As I said, this is not moralizing, not my place to tell people where they're wrong, but because it's ineffective, because it's no different than playing the lottery and sitting on your ass on the couch saying, well, I'm not going to go to work today because I'm going to win. the When I win the lottery, everything's going to be great and it's going to be sunshine and I'm going to buy a Corvette and all the Pez I want. You can't do that. That's no way to think of it, especially when it's something negative for the country. Going back to 9-11, all those crazy conspiracy theorists, what were they saying? Bush did it for oil. He did it for this. He did it for that. He wanted to really increase his power. And it was like crystal knocked and all this garbage. And yet what ended up happening? If that was his master plan, it certainly didn't work out really well for him, did it? Somehow he pulled that all off without anybody getting wiser. Yet he was not able to execute the aftermath, which was, I don't know. I heard Derek talking about the sock gnomes. Step one, steal socks. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. But you're not supposed to go look too closely at that question mark, I guess. So if you're out there and you have anybody's ear or you're trying to persuade people, I think it's much more persuasive to say, hey, this is happening at the border. We really should be on top of this before something happens because I do not want something to happen. I do not want to see a nuke let off in California just because it has 54 electoral votes and they'll suddenly be out of play. We need to get on top of this. And as the president is fond of saying, although he is, as Reagan called him, a smooth demagogue, think Sade combined with Jim Jones. As the president is fond of saying, this is not a partisan issue. Everyone else is always a partisan, not you, right, Mr. President? No, no, no politicians ever partisan. They're always just looking out for our best interests. That is something that's definitely food for thought. Scary, but I wanted to look at it a little bit differently from everyone else who will probably just be having their hair on fire between those ads for survival rations. Probably helps that I don't have that much hair anymore. And if you had seen it in 1980 when I was Reagan's campaign manager at Lincoln School, ha! Huh, you would have envied it, my friends. It was the biggest Greek fro in the world. But times change. However, however, America's timeless ideals do not. That's why they're written down in the Constitution and ratified by all the states. And it is really hard to change them because we cannot have a Constitution that shifts all the time with the whims of human beings. We are just too easily distracted. We are just too focused on ourselves. So fortunately, we have the Constitution as our North Star. Keeps us in line. 
So the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, praising Vladimir Putin for his invasion of Ukraine. Listen to this. I said, this is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. That's the strongest peace force I've ever seen. There were more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're going to keep peace all right. You know, Hezbollah is very smart. They're all very smart. The press doesn't like when they say it. But Hezbollah, they're very smart. I'll never forget that Bibi Netanyahu let us down. That was a very terrible thing. I will say that. They've got to straighten it out because they're fighting potentially a very big force. They're fighting potentially Iran. And when they have people saying the wrong things, everything they say is being digested by these people because they're vicious and they're smart. And boy, are they vicious because nobody's ever seen the kind of sight that we've seen. But they cannot play games, so we were disappointed by that, very disappointed, but we did the job ourselves, and it was absolute precision, magnificent, beautiful job. And then uh, Bibi tried to take credit for it. That wasn't good. That didn't make me feel too good, but that's all right. So they got to strengthen themselves up. And they said, gee, I hope Hezbollah doesn't attack from the north, because that's the most vulnerable spot. I said, wait a minute. Speaking of the Constitution and 9-11, let me play you a clip here from Elizabeth Cheney, the former congresswoman from Wyoming. The apologies to Derek, who might not want to subject you to this. Let me just roll this. This is Liz Cheney with Jacob Tapper on CNN's State of the Union. Put on your pearls, my friends, and prepare to clutch them tightly. So if you think about um, not only is he out there uh, advocating for um, complimenting America's adversaries and, in fact, terrorist organizations that slaughter innocents. Um, he also seems to have shared very highly classified intelligence information, both ours and the Israelis, in fact, with adversaries. So I think it's, it's simply the latest example of why Donald Trump is not fit to be president of the United States. Um, who do you think is providing better leadership on the international stage right now, um, Biden or Trump? Oh, certainly Biden. That is very dangerous, and, and people like that don't understand the threat we face. And as you know, it's not just House Republicans, it's not just Donald Trump, it's, in, it's Fox. It's an entire right-wing ecosystem that is, that is amplifying these lies. And Donald Trump is likely to be the next Republican presidential nominee, and he has a decent shot of being elected the next president. I mean, it, it could happen. What would a second Donald Trump term look like? Well, he cannot be the next president. Um, it, it, because if he is, um, all of the things that he attempted to do um, but was stopped from doing by responsible people around him at the Department of Justice, at the White House Counsel's Office, all of those things he will do. There will be no guardrails. And everyone has been warned. After January 6th, after our investigation, after all of the evidence that we laid out about all of the steps in his multi-part plan to overturn the election, there can be no question uh, that he will unravel the institutions of our democracy. So um, we, are, we are facing a moment in American politics where we have to set aside partisanship and we have to make sure that people who believe in the Constitution are willing to come together
to prevent him from ever again setting foot anywhere near the Oval Office. Now, let's remember all the things that were said by people in Jake Tapper's world about her father. All of the same terrifying things. Darth Vader. Oh my gosh, Cheney. He's a war criminal. He just is there to get oil in Iraq. He's murdering people. All of that horrible, horrible stuff. Dick Cheney was so horrible. He would shoot a friend in the face with a shotgun and not. Oh, wait. wait yeah. Yeah. He did actually do that. Well, uh, oh, okay. Well, I can edit that out. That's fine. Right. Just keep it between us that I said that. Bad example. He did actually pepper poor Harry Whittington with a shotgun. Who has two morning breakfast beers and then goes hunting? Ridiculous. But all of these things were said about her father. And now full bore. And I have no problem with them speaking their mind. They think they have this. They think like the old nobility that they have this obligation to speak out and people want to hear them. But can we just take the drama down a notch? I mean, I'm Greek. We invented drama. And this answer is too dramatic for me. He's out there advocating for complimenting America's adversaries and, in fact, terrorist organizations. You know exactly what the man was saying. And he was doing it specifically to get this reaction. And if you really want to stop Trump, stop taking the bait. Stop. What are you thinking? Well, no, that's not how the game is played. He said the bad thing. And when you say the bad thing or the thing we can tell everyone is the bad thing because they put themselves in charge of deciding what the bad thing is and what the thing you said means. Really, that was word salad, but very appropriate, don't you think? I have not lost my place despite picking through the croutons there. But everybody knows what he means. Everybody complimenting America's adversaries. Did it bother you when Hillary Clinton was doing it? There with the button after Bush. Ha ha ha. Remember the misspelled one that said reset button, throwing America under the bus, the previous administration. Oh, ha ha ha. Sucking up to the Russians. She misspelled the button, by the way. Uh, in anticipation of uh, this important meeting and our, our time here together, I wanted to uh, present you with uh, a little gift which represents what President Obama and Vice President Biden and I have been saying. And that is, we want to reset our relationship. And let's do it, let's do it together. <laughs> so we will do it together, okay? <laughs> Thank you very much. You are Thank very you. welcome. We worked hard to get the right Russian word. Do you think you, we got it? You get it wrong. I got it wrong. <laughs> it should be Perezagruska. Ah. And this says uh, Peregruska, which means overcharged. <laughs> well, we won't let you do that to us, I, I promise. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thank you very so very much. Very kind of you. Would be on my desk. <laughs> well, we, uh, we mean it and we look forward to it. Hillary is pretty funny, so she was able to think on a dime. Really great comedic timing. <laughs> but, I mean, what are you going to say? I don't know how many people and how many bureaucrats did that have to go through to be misspelled. I, I still am shocked that that happened. But really, shared very highly classified intelligence information, both ours and the Israelis. A president can share information. Liz, you know this. He declassifies it. You share it with all kinds of people to warn them about terrorist attacks. That's what they're elected to do. The people who are screaming and yelling about democracy and the Constitution, this is what a president does. And you know what? There's lots of things that they do that we don't think are good, but they're not threatening democracy. They would not, as she says, 
unravel the institutions of our democracy. Remember that Constitution dealie I just mentioned there, Liz? Well, that stands as a bulwark. You don't think other presidents have tried to get around it, tried to break it? Even if you think Donald Trump is this existential threat to the country, because they love them, the word existential. One of those words, nobody really knows what it means, but you figure dumb people will be too afraid to ask. Well, let me tell you, the Constitution was specifically written so no one man, even a president, can get around it, could destroy it. There are plenty of checks and balances, and if a president wins, you know what? It's your job to oppose him or her using the tools the Constitution gives you. Because you know what? The Constitution gives you more tools than Bob Vila has in his shed. And that was before he broke up with Master Carpenter Norm Abram. Put all of their tools together. Heck, throw in Tim the Toolman Taylor from Tool Time. RPM, 6.8 amps. The Constitution has plenty of tools. That's why it diversifies power. And you know what? That's why conservatives used to believe in limiting the power of government to keep those checks and balances, to follow the Tenth Amendment, which states that the powers that are not hereby granted to the federal government are the rights of the states and the people. So if you're so worried about Donald Trump, how about sucking away some of that power from Washington? Instead of just focusing on him, why don't you focus on the next guy who you think is a real threat? Well, they don't want to do that, do they? They just want to keep him out because they like using all that power that's in there. This is who the guy is, and I think people out there like Liz Cheney and Jake Tapper who want to go overboard with the drama fail to realize that that kind of honesty is what's binding Trump to his voters. The same way I just talked about Rush being bound to all that audience because he made that personal effort. That's something Rush talked about that nobody else did throughout the Trump phenomenon was there would always be a moment, might be 10 seconds, might be a minute, in every speech where Trump would thank people for coming. And he would talk about people in his audience. He'd call people out for T-shirts. That's a natural political ability. And that is something that is really missing today. We outsource, or our candidates outsource a lot of that to people on social media. Witness John Fetterman had this social media team out there campaigning for him when he couldn't. There's a lot of that going on. And I think to act like this is the end of the world, instead of just dealing with him on policy, which you could certainly do, you're not going to go after him personally. You're not going to scare anybody else with all this hyperbole that you don't already have. Sure, can be very frustrated with it. And even if you think it's true, and I can hear probably people screaming at their little earbud, don't do that. Don't scream at your earbud. You look ridiculous. You don't have a radio anymore to scream at, right? We got to scream at the little earbud. But I understand there's people out there who say, yes, yes, people always laugh at despots. That's not good. He's really dangerous. Okay. So your goal is to defeat him, right? How's this working out for you? How's all the over-the-top stuff that people aren't buying working out for you? It is not. Trust other people. I was listening to my former Rush colleague, James Golden, Bo Snerdly, talk with Derek a couple weeks ago, and he had some strange callers on there. And I'll tell you, in the talk radio business, it's very easy to condescend to callers, very easy to say, oh my gosh, what is happening with this country that we're in? But play the ball where it lies. You deal with the country you have. You Go to war with the country you have, not the country that you wish you had. And you can't just throw your hands up. There's quite simply not enough people who still believe in the ideals of limited government and of the founding ideals for anybody to remain silent and remain on the sidelines. And I'm really disgusted by all of these Republicans that 
they think they can just say, well, I'll just go and find my own place and I'll, I'll live quietly in a little seaside town and then I'll go to another country. That is a terrible way to think of things. No different than now share the latest person. This time, if Trump wins, she's moving. But why don't you just leave now? I had a very liberal friend say this to me. If you love the country, what's with all these leftists saying they're leaving if Bush gets reelected? Stay and fight. And that's what I would urge everyone in this audience to do. If you believe in something, fight for it through that political process. Don't give up and be positive. Be of good cheer. That is so important in this day when everything is so dark and you can get so depressed. There's war seemingly everywhere. People look at President Biden, especially those of us who follow politics for a long time and know that the guy was never a first-rate intellect, and you just get depressed and downtrodden and you get a little bit angry. It's like the song, Is She Really Going Out With Him by Joe Jackson. Pretty women walking with gorillas down my street. Well, America, to all of us, I think, I still hope the vast majority of America, whoever we are, America is the pretty woman. And the gorilla is all the negative things that we see out there. The anger that he feels there, I just hope it's something that can lift off of all of us because it's not attractive and it's not persuasive. And there's a lot of people out there that do engage in it. I love Derek's sarcasm and his sense of humor on these matters. I think that's so important for all of us to follow that example. I said I wasn't going to preach, but I guess I did preach just a tiny bit. So let me give you a funny story here to conclude with. <laughs> it occurred to me there about callers to talk radio. Rush had one one day. The guy's example was he was going to compare something in the lexicon to the antichrist i think he was talking about the word anti i have all the transcripts somewhere but i'm thinking of it on the fly he said antipasta is like the antichrist you have something other than christ it's antipasto the antipasta that's the thing you have instead of pasta menu <laughs> think about a menu they have things listed as pasta and this guy thought he wouldn't know that all the other things that weren't listed as pasta weren't pasta. So antipasto, I guess he figured it was a typo, that it was supposed to be an O instead of an A, and that they had this one single meal that was something other than pasta if you went to an Italian restaurant and wanted something other than pasta. So that was the sole purpose of antipasto. <laughs> Now, sometimes on menus, it's called antipasti with an I, but still the concept is the same. It's, it's before the meal. It's not, it's not instead of pasta. The anti is before. It's not like antichrist. It's more like antebellum, but this guy thought that it was instead of pasta. I hope he's out there somewhere and still remembers it and maybe hears this because it gave me one of the biggest laughs I think I ever had from something a caller said. And it just cracked me up so much. First of all, he was saying it wrong, antipasta, like it was the spaghetti monster. Or if you're old enough to remember the Super Globetrotters, which was a TV show back when I was working in the Reagan administration in grade school on the campaign. The Super Globetrotters, right? And a whole bunch of guys in there. And one of them was voiced by Buster Jones, Spaghetti Man. So I guess maybe Spaghetti Man's arch enemy, his Sinestro to Green Lantern or Lex Luthor to Superman was anti-pasta? <laughs> it was just so great. But I'll tell you, uh, Rush never 
never made fun of a caller, never laughed at a caller like that. But uh, yeah, that didn't stop all of us on the production team from doing it sometimes. Because all of them, all of you, and everybody in America was family to Rush. So he always looked at them that way. And even when they said those kinds of things, he would he would not call them out on it. If he did, it would be very subtle. And it would only increase that bond between him and the audience, which is something that Derek certainly has and something that is absolutely important to me to continue that this week, guest hosting for the Derek Hunter podcast. Again, you can find me at nysun.com and you can find me at History Dean on Twitter. Plus, you can find the History Author Show. I produce those up on YouTube videos, but the podcasts go back way back now, I think eight years, over 260 interviews. Patreon.com slash Derek Hunter Podcast and DerekHunter.Locals.com are the websites to support Derek's show. And the book contest, by the way, it will continue. It'll just be pushed another week. So, Keep your hopes up out there. Be of good cheer. If you want to win that book, you still are in it to win it if you go and sign up. Thank you so much to Derek for inviting me to sit in today. I hope you enjoyed my reflections and rambling today. I really wanted to uplift all of you. I didn't want to come across as somebody who just says what the smart people on the right want to say. So go ahead and buy one of those frozen dinners that's going to last you until you want to have beef stroganoff in the year 2050. I want it to be different. My columns are like that too. Please do check me out at nysun.com. I sure would appreciate it. I will be here all week and look forward to speaking with you tomorrow, Wednesday, hump day, the camel's favorite day of the week. See you then, and until then, have a great day. Look in your heart and ask yourself, are you funky enough to be a globetrotter? Are you? Yes. Are you? No. Deal with it.